Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. We are teaching this morning on the church at Pergamum. It is the third one, the third letter that is presented. Now, Pergamum was the oldest city of all the churches in Asia Minor. It was the most beautiful city in all the churches in Asia Minor. In fact, in Asia Minor, it was so beautiful and so wonderful that they made it the provincial capital. Now, the provincial capital of any province or any state has a certain feel to it, uh, a feeling of power, uh, almost a feeling of arrogance. Uh, I live in the capital city. Bakersfield is not the capital city of California. And we thank God today that we have a word from the Lord that tells us what is so important that we are about to discuss. If Ephesus was the New York City of Asia, then Pergamum was its Washington, D.C. With all of its political intrigue, with all of its deception, and with all of its corruption, it was there in the city of Pergamum. Now, just behind the city was a conical hill that rose so many feet into the air. And every heathen god or goddess that was worth his or her salt had a temple built on that hill behind the city of Pergamum. There were so many temples. And when you looked at it from a certain angle, each one of them looked like a throne. It was a beautiful city. It was a powerful city. What is a, was a city that really needed our God. The word parchment comes from the word Pergamum, on which many writings were written. And talking about that, Pergamum boasted the greatest library in all of the world. Alexandria in, in Egypt also made that same boast, but they shouldn't made it because they simply got the library that Pergamum had. 200,000 volumes plus. We don't know how many more. And each volume wasn't like a little book. Each volume was voluminous. There's a wonderful story about what really happened in this library. There was a Roman general by the name of Antony, A-N-T-O-N-Y, not Anthony, Antony. And he had a girlfriend who was named Cleopatra. And she was the queen of Egypt. And one day, 
he simply decided to give her a gift. So he appeared and he had all of the equipment that carried these 200,000 plus volumes, volumes, the greatest library in all of the known world, including that of Greece. Now, how many would like a gift of 200,000 volumes? Have you thought where you might put it? My wife would not consider that a gift because while I had about 2,000 and a little more volumes, many of which that I have given away, but many that I still have in boxes and I hide them so she won't give them away. I love books. I love books. I like to look at them. I like to read them. I like to do research. When I'm asked to preach, then I've got at least some tools that I could work with. Gene, you wouldn't want 200,000 more volumes, would you? Right, right, right. We've been married over 62 years. And this lady is the best lady in all of the world. But she doesn't like books. She doesn't like books. Doesn't like books. So we all have our own little likes and, and dislikes. You know how that goes, don't you? So Mark Antony moved this great library, but it really belonged to Pergamum. It was one great city. Now let's read out of uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 27. No, I'm going, only going to go to 17. Oh, I'm not going to go into Thyatira. That's for the pastor next week. That's a good one, too. They're all good, 2 to 17. And as we read, I'm going to stop and make what is an appropriate comment or an application. These are the words of him. Now, who wrote these words? The book of Revelation is the revelation or the unveiling of Jesus Christ. I am glad I have not heard one person call this revelations. It's not revelations, many revelations of many things that are, are not connected with the Christian life. It is a single, not a plural, revelation unveiling of Jesus Christ and what he plans to do in the ages that are to come. Pergamum was a great city, and it was in him that he wrote this letter. And when he wrote this letter as the Ancient of Days, it says that he had in his hand a sharp double-edged sword. Now, that means that the sword cut both ways. The sword is the Word of God, and the Word of God cuts both ways. It cuts to blessing, and it cuts to death. If you believe it, if you apply it, it cuts to your blessing and eternal salvation. But if you do not read it, this Bible, this Word, all of it, 
then it cuts to your destruction. And I pray that God will not have anyone that will be cut. So watch out for the sword and how it might come to your life. It is very sharp and it does its work very, very effectively. Talking about him, there are only two full-length portraits of Jesus Christ in the Bible. Now, they didn't have cameras in Jesus' day. Nobody knows what he looks like. There have been artists that have depicted him, and that's all very nice, but he doesn't look like that at all. He had never taken a selfie of himself and left it with John and said, now, John, leave it with somebody else that down through the ages, everybody will know what I look like. The full-length portrait of Jesus Christ is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. And you can read that later. Time will not permit for me to read it today. But please read it after that. And the other full-length portrait of Jesus Christ is in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 10 to 16. And that's very, very symbolic and a little bit mushy as well. But those are the only full-length portraits of what he really looked like. So as you read Revelation 1, you will discover that he is majestic. He is superlative. He is all and in all. He is powerful. And we love him with all of our hearts. Oh, thank God for him who holds the two-edged sword and what he is and all that he has done and all that he will do. Now we're going to come to verse 13. And we're going to look at a couple of things in here that are very puzzling in the text. I have taken the time to do my due diligence in trying to exegete this, and I've read uh, about nine different commentaries as to what they said this one verse means by itself. So let's begin, shall we? The words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. That's where you live, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. Where does Satan live? Well, look at the first part of verse 13. I know where you live. Look at the last three words, where Satan lives. We live where he lives. Now, here's the puzzling part, and I think I found a few keys that, that might help us a little bit to, 
discover what it means. Satan is not in hell. He was bruised at the cross. And ever since, he's had this incredible headache. So he goes about roaring like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. So Satan then is still with us. He is not in hell. In Revelation 20 and 10, he will get there eventually. And God will put him with the false prophet and the beast who are already there. And that evil trinity will never bother anybody ever again. Thank God and thank God Satan will be bound and put in a burning lake of fire. Uh, today, Satan is not there. He's on the loose. He's everywhere. He's where you live. He's where I live. He is everywhere. And he's roaming around, seeking people that he can devour and destroy in their own native faith. Satan lives where you live. Now that's got a wonderful application because if he knows where you live, he knows your problems. He knows the things that are difficult for you. He knows the troubles you have and see. He knows the things you have gone through. He knows your secrets. He knows things about you that nobody else knows. This Satan knows all that you think. He still has that power. And he still has that knowledge. And he lives among us. Now, he is called also the apocalypse, the unveiling. And he has his headquarters on earth. So when we talk about Satan, please be aware that he's still around. And he's right here. He's here. He even attends churches to destroy people and distract them when the word of God is being preached. When the two-edged sword is speaking the words of Jesus Christ. His headquarters is in John's day in the city of Pergamum. That's where he resides. That's where his throne is. Because when you look at those heathen temples, whether they're to Athena or Zeus or Asclepius, the serpent god, or Caesar Augustus, who declared himself to be God, whatever those temples were, they only increased the demonic power in this city of Pergamon. This was a tough place to live. You think it's bad here? You should have lived back there in that day. It would be my wish that we could get rid of him right now. 
It would be my wish if we couldn't get rid of him. We could get him out of the United States because we've got enough deceivers walking around devouring people and teaching people false doctrine and they will end in hell if we could get rid of him. Well, let's see. Why don't we send him to Canada? They say, nice place. They say that's where all the cold weather comes from. They say we're getting a storm front from Canada. They blame us for everything. <laughs> Canada. Hey, big country. Small population. Lots of room for Satan to do some rolling around, roaring there. But not a lot of people that he would be able to destroy. So let's see, where else could we send him? Let's get him out of North America. Why don't we send him to North Korea? I mean, they don't even believe in him. So he'd really have his way there. He wouldn't find it hard to convince the people when he said, there is no God. Or they could send him to Iran. Well, what about Syria? Well, maybe he's there. We don't. He's somewhere. His headquarters is no longer in Pergamum because that church is dead. But this church that is dead is speaking to us about many things, past, present, and future. And we're about to know all about it. We're about to hear what God's Word says. So Satan will always be roaming and roaring because of the cross until the day when God finally deals with him. And everybody said from the bottom of their heart, amen and amen. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. This city that was so saturated with demonic power you see, Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere like God at the same time. God can do that. Jesus is God. He can do that. But Satan cannot do that. He's got to have a local headquarters. So the throne of Satan is unquestionably in John's day Pergamum. That's where he lived. That's where his throne was, on which he sat. The throne of Satan. Well, hopefully, though you might disagree with me, that would be just fine, as long as you have some reason, based in the Word of God, that it is something other than that. That's the best I could do with that one, Pastor P. Throne of Satan. It was Pergamum at that time. We don't know where it is today. But Satan is well organized. Can't be everywhere. But he's got thousands of imps and demons. And he dispatches them all around the world. And they bring 
a satanic oppression upon every community. We have one. I don't know who he is or where he is or what he is called. Can you imagine the demon that he must have sent to Los Angeles or New York City or Chicago? Demonic influence, crime in a downward spiral leading us to say, oh God, is there any hope for humanity? Is there any hope for any of us? Satan's throne is Pergamum. And his imps are all around the world taking charge and doing his work. I, I've looked at this passage of God's word from about nine different commentators. And it seems to me that this is the consensus of their opinion that I'm sharing with you at this time. Now, he's got a commendation, and it's twofold. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. They did not deny his name. They did not deny that he is Lord. Caesar Augustus, the Romans, demanded that once a year, that everybody in the Roman Empire would come and burn a pinch of incense and they would receive a certificate for that, that they had fulfilled their duty and Rome had political power in mind rather than in spiritual power and they had to declare one time a year that Caesar is Lord. Now that's the one thing that the Christian then and now can never do, say that Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And he is our Christ. And he is our soon coming king. And the Satan has powers that he distributes through his imps and his demons. But the Holy Spirit's power is greater than all of well, in the days of Antipas, it said that while you remain true to my name, you did not renounce your faith in me when they took Antipas, the faithful witness, a martyr, and put him to death in your city. Now, Antipas is the only martyr that is named by name in the book of Revelation, but there are thousands of martyrs. The only one that has a name. And they said, he was one of yours. You know him. We know him. It's Antipas. But when Antipas died that way, you didn't run. You didn't flee. You didn't deny. You kept the faith. You renounced Satan but you never renounced your faith in the living God. What they did with Antipas wasn't very nice. Today, ISIS takes heads off. That's not very nice either. What they did with Antipas was they had a great brazen bull that was hollow. And they put him inside of it. 
and they put it over fire. And they roasted him slowly to death. Boy, not a nice way to go either. The only nice way I can see of going is when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound. And time shall be no more. Hallelujah. We shall rise. We shall rise. Hallelujah. 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 So there's a commendation for these people that suffered greatly, and yet they were faithful to their God. Now there's a condemnation side of this as well. And it says, and I'm going to read this in verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few. Oh, that's good. That's better than a lot. I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, who was a prophet, wanting to be hired by the king of Moab, and the king of Moab wanted Balaam to curse Israel. I can't do that. God won't let me. And you can read all about it in the book of Numbers. It goes on and on and on. It's almost an endless saga of how they tried to curse Israel. I'll tell you, Israel is the gemstone of God's heart and God's life. And all we who have become spiritual Israel in the sense that we receive a Jewish Messiah and we are part of the same vine. And, you know, there isn't a Christian stock and a Jewish stock with Christians in it. There's only one stock. And there's a myriad of denominations and a myriad of, of cultures and a myriad of ethnic origins. And they're all there in this one vine, this one stock, who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Condemnation. I'm only going to say this further. Oh, that's nice. Friendly, though. Came right down to say hello. <laughs> Pastor Pete, your ear must be larger than mine. I know your head is. All right, we, 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 we've got the fixer upper here. Johnny told me that uh, you would be coming. You, you guarantee your work for how long? Oh, my goodness. Wow, I've got to hurry. I, I really do. What time is the next service? We'll finish in time. We'll finish in time. Let, let me give you the bottom line of the teaching of Balaam. And uh, the teaching of the Nicolaitans that I think Pastor Pete already touched on in, in Ephesus, the church to Ephesus. The bottom line sin that they got into was 
idolatry and sexual immorality. And somehow these two seem to go so often together. Idolatry and sexual immorality. Idolatry. Anything you think more of than God, that's your idol. Whether it's your money, your car, your home, your education. Anything that you love more or think more of than God is idolatry. All right, we'll leave that one. That didn't get a lot of amens. I'm either hitting home or I've lost all connections. Let's wrap this up with some wonderful promises. What can a dead church like Pergamum teach us today? Number one, I will give him, in verse 17, it says, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will give him also a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Hidden manna. Now the story of the manna is what God sent down from heaven as bread. Manna simply means, what is it? And perhaps it became what they wanted it to be. But they got tired uh, of what they were formerly eating and they, they wanted something new. And God's response was, manna came down from heaven. And Moses said to Aaron, Aaron, put some of this in a gold pot and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. And it will always be there as a reminder, as a reminder that God is faithful, that God will meet your needs. My God shall meet all your needs according to his riches in glory. Not your bank account, but his riches in glory. That's the bank from which we draw our strength. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Moses said, Aaron, I want you to have that so somewhere in the last days they're going to discover where the ark is. Nobody knows where it is. Nobody knows where the cup is. Nobody knows a lot of things that they say they know. And if somebody says they know, they don't know. They're not being honest or they're deceiving themselves and you at the same time. God help us. The manna that we trust in today However, it's not the manna that came in the wilderness as they wandered around and around and around trying to get into the promised land. The Bible says very carefully that that manna is in John, pardon me, 6 and 35. If I can just turn and read that there, I would like to, just give me a moment, should have had that marked better. Don't preach often now. Forget things. Wow. I'm preaching like I don't want to get invited again. So you see, there's a blessing in everything. Jesus said, John 
35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not go hungry, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Thank God we have the joy of the Lord. I am satisfied in Jesus Christ. Sure, there's a lot of things that I'd like to have, but I don't really need. But what I need, he feedeth me on the manna, on the bread, and all he is to all of us, and all that he has done through the cross. Now let me talk about this white stone. And I found this more interesting than puzzling. The white stone was a token of acquittal. It was used in the legal sense. When the prosecuting attorney had laid out his arguments, why that man or woman should be guilty. And then the defense attorney stood up and tried to plead the case for the defendant that he was not guilty of all those things that the prosecuting attorney had said. When it came to the vote, didn't go to a separate room where they were pledged to silence from outside media. The judge had two stones, a white one and a black one. And if he handed the white stone to the man or the woman that was tried, it was because you were acquitted. You are found innocent of the charges that have been laid against you. If he handed you a black stone, you would be guilty and there would be punishment to follow. Now, juries got involved in this sometimes, and so they each had a white and black stone, and they passed around a nice kind of pail, and they dropped in their vote, white or black, for guilt or innocent. This white stone is interesting for several reasons, and let me tell you what I think. There have been times when Satan has gone before the Lord to accuse to accuse God's people. God, you said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So we should all die because we have sinned. Satan is the prosecuting attorney. But Jesus is the defense attorney. And he stands and he says, Father, it is true what the prosecuting attorney said. He is guilty. She is guilty of many sins some secret and some known. But I paid the price. I took their penalty. I took their death. I took their punishment. I took all that was wrong and I nailed it to the cross with myself. It was there in me. I took it inwardly. I drank the cup. It wasn't an outward thing. It was the most horrible thing Jesus ever had to do was to drink your sin. It was so bitter and so poisonous and so polluted. The white stone, it says here, had a new name written on it. Now, I have searched again, and I think I know what this means. 
First of all, Jesus, when he died on the cross, gave me a white stone. He handed it down. Here. Here is your defense lawyer, your attorney. No, 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 you can't have this. But I need it for the rest of my illustration. Got something on the other side. Jesus, our defense attorney, has given everybody here that is a Christian a white stone. We're acquitted. We're going to live forever. We're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of the things that God has done in Jesus Christ is yours and mine forever. I got the stone. I got the stone. I got the stone. And you haven't got the stone yet. Now there's a new name written on it. Let me wind up everything by saying what I think this means. A new name is not the name of Pergamum being changed or Jerusalem being changed in the end times. Or even in Revelation 19 where it talks about he has a new name, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the true and faithful and God has so many names. God has so many names. Jesus has so many names. Jesus is God. One and the same. One and the same. I think what is on that stone that's written is this. It says Bob Johnson. Now that stone becomes very meaningful. I not only got this from my defense attorney, but he put my name on it, Bob Johnson. You know why? Because a white stone, to have a white stone in that day in Pergamum mean that you had a pass to all the events you wished to attend. You didn't have to pay. You had the stone. And if you had the white stone, your name written on it, there's your ticket. No cost, no charge. Welcome to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I got the stone. Here, Lord, it says I'll be there. Bob Johnson will be there. Pete Baker will be there. You will be there. Gene will be there. Everybody will be there that loves the Lord. I got the stone. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.